you can turn to Luke chapter 15 as we conclude this great chapter. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In 1976, 
24-year-old David Berkowitz went on a killing spree and for more than a year terrorized the citizens of New York City. Over that time, he killed six women and severely wounded seven others, blinding one, paralyzing another. His victims were random, often people sitting in their cars who would be his targets. He would approach the car, pull out his 44 caliber revolver, fire multiple shots into the vehicle, and disappear again into the night. He sent letters taunting the police to catch him, referring to himself as the son of Sam. For over a year, he eluded the largest police manhunt in the history of New York City, while leaving letters that mocked the police, promising additional crimes. All of this was highly publicized by the press. Berkowitz was also an arsonist, and during that 13-month period, he set over 1,400 fires throughout the city. He was finally arrested on August 10, 1977, and subsequently indicted for eight shootings. He is currently serving six consecutive life sentences in a maximum security prison in upstate New York. However, something happened while Berkowitz was in prison that changed him forever. His own written testimony, his own written testimony states, Ten years into my prison sentence and feeling despondent and without hope, Another inmate came up to me one day as I was walking the prison yard on a cold winter's night. He introduced himself and began to tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and wanted to forgive me. Although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I did not think that God would ever forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still, this man persisted and we became friends. His name was Rick, and we would walk the yard together. Little by little, he would share with me about his life and what he believed Jesus had done for him. He gave me a Bible and kept reminding me that no matter what a person has done, Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to repent and put their full trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. One night, I was reading Psalm 34, and I came upon the sixth verse, which says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him from all his troubles. It was at that moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me all at once. The guilt from what I did, the disgust at what I had become, Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry out to Jesus Christ. From that time forward, Berkowitz has served the Lord in prison. He disciples and counsels other men. He leads various Bible studies and he even writes articles concerning the Christian faith that you can find online. 
In 2002, Larry King interviewed him from prison, and Berkowitz talked much about his faith in Christ. At one point in the interview, King responded to something he said, and Larry King asked him, You think God, your God, has forgiven you? Berkowitz responded, Yes, I know he has. It was a long process to understand that, but I came to terms with that. I know that His Word has promised that He's forgiven me. Well, the interview created no small stir with Larry King's national audience. People wrote in and others called in and expressed their hate for the idea that God would forgive someone like him. The consensus was that he does not deserve forgiveness because his crimes are too great. Now that is a very common belief in our society. That is that if a person engages in evil and immoral acts, that even if later on there is remorse and there is repentance and there is a changed life, they are still beyond redemption. There are certain sins that people commit that take them out of the category of being redeemable. And sadly, those beliefs are often held by deeply religious people. This is certainly what the Pharisees believed. There were two categories of people in their minds. There were the worthy and there were the unworthy. And if you were in the latter category, there was no hope for you. There's a picture of this attitude in Luke chapter 18. That is the scripture reading I had uh, Richard read. Two men who are both sinners in the eyes of God go to perform a religious duty. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And what we find is not that there are two categories of men, worthy and unworthy, but there is only one category. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means the sin of the Pharisee and the sin of the tax collector are both offensive to God. The tax collector's sins are obvious. The Pharisee's sins are hidden. But both men need forgiveness. In fact, why don't you turn a couple pages to the right and let's talk about this as way of introduction. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, But the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now here you have a man who is in open and outward rebellion against God. He is stealing from his own people, the Jews. He is dishonoring father and mother. And he is pursuing a life of greed rather than loving God and loving neighbor. And next to him you have a deeply religious Pharisee, a leader over God's people, a man committed to the truth of God, and yet he's full of arrogance and self-righteousness. In fact, he is so lost in his sin that he thinks he is righteous. And he's so lost in his sin that he thinks he is nothing like this other man. And that's because the self-righteous person always puts himself in a different category than others and looks at those who have obvious outward sins and says, I am nothing like they are. And while it is true their sins may be different, the truth is that they are more like each other than they are like God. And apart from repentance and forgiveness, both of their sins are going to bring judgment. And in this parable, the outwardly sinful man humbles himself and is justified, and the outwardly religious man doesn't and is condemned. Now, you can turn back to Luke chapter 15. I just wanted to draw a parallel between that parable and our parable in chapter 15. Because what you're going to see here is that you have the outwardly sinful younger son and you have the outwardly religious older son, or the outwardly righteous I should say, and one of them will be justified and one of them will be condemned. Now, just to catch us up to speed where we are in this chapter... Beginning in verse 1, sinners are gathering around Jesus to hear him, tax collectors and sinners, and these are the people the religious Jews think are outside of the kingdom, and so when they see them gathering to Jesus and Jesus not turning them away, they begin to murmur. Jesus responds by teaching three parables about the lost being found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And through these stories, Jesus reveals God's attitude towards sinners, that heaven rejoices when the lost are found, and that it's not the Father's heart to condemn, but it's the Father's heart to forgive, even the worst of the worst. And Jesus provides an example for us in this younger son. This is what we saw last week. This younger son in the parable does the unthinkable. He demands his inheritance 
And he takes his father's money and goes to a far off Gentile land and he spends all of it on wild living. The bars, the nightclubs, the, the trendy restaurants, whatever his heart's desire, his heart's his heart desires, he spends his father's money liberally and carelessly. And as we discussed, this can only go on for so long because such living ends up in a famine. And in the story, the son becomes penniless and desperate. So what does he do? He hires himself out to feed pigs, which in the Jewish mind is a picture of hitting rock bottom and he is starving and he is perishing. And from that place of his own self-induced anguish, he remembers his father's house. And he says, I can return to him. I can beg and plead that he would make me as one of his hired servants. And that's what we see in verse 17. He, it says, he came to himself. And so he desired decides he's going to humble himself and return to his father. And he's making his way back, and he's going through what he's going to say, and he's going to throw himself at his father's feet and cry out for mercy. And it is at that point that we saw a surprising twist in the story. The father whom everyone expects to crush this worthless son instead shows him love, compassion, and acceptance. Instead of driving him away, he embraces him. Instead of stripping him of whatever remains of self-respect, he covers his shame with his own festal robe. Instead of demanding he pay back what he owes the family, he puts a gold ring on his finger. Instead of throwing away this derelict of a son off his property, he throws him one heck of a party. And this is the story Jesus teaches to describe God's grace. Just as the prodigal son was received back by the father, so too God receives the sinner to those who turn to him. Even the worst of sinners. Anyone can leave the pig pen and return to the Father's house and be received and forgiven. That is the message we saw last week. And the story could have ended right there. I mean, the point was made crystal clear. But there is another issue that Jesus must deal with here. That is only one side of the proverbial coin. The situation before him is not just that wayward sinners can come to God and be forgiven, but that these religious leaders who shun them, who are self-righteous and also lost, need to see that they do not share the Father's heart. Jesus now shifts the focus of the story from the rebellious son who ran away to the rebellious son who stayed. It has been said before, there are two ways to run from God. 
Be as bad as you can, or be as good as you can. The first kind of rebellion is obvious, and usually brings with it terrible consequences. DUI, time in jail, divorce, broken relationships, addictions, and so forth. But the other kind is not as obvious, but it's equally offensive to God. While the tax collectors knew they were sinners, they knew they had broken God's laws, the sin of the Pharisees was much more sinister. It was sin that was hidden under religious activity. They prayed in public to be seen by men. They fasted so that everyone knew it. They made a big show of their giving, always making sure the cameras were rolling. They did all of these outward things, presenting themselves as holy men, and yet they had a form of religion that brought glory only to themselves. And Jesus portrays them as the older of the two sons. The younger one was clearly a sinner, that much was evidence, but now he will show that the older son was too. He was just better at hiding it. But when his father gives grace to the prodigal son, his true heart is exposed. Reading from Luke 15:25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Here we meet the hard-working older son. He would be the one who received praise from the townspeople as being a credit to his father. He was disciplined, he was obedient, and he was very much unlike the son who had gone astray, and he made sure everyone knew it. Now, certainly goodness and righteousness are commendable, but there is a goodness that is not good, and there is a righteousness that is not righteous. There can be an outward conformity to rules without an inward devotion to God and this was the sin of the Pharisees, and this was the sin of the older son. Verse 25, I'm always, I always chuckle at the fact that he heard the music and dancing. That's what it says. Now you know the party's thumping when you can hear music and dancing from a quarter mile away. And so I picture the scene, the sun is setting behind the mountains, it's getting dark. The father hires a DJ. So you got DJ Finkelstein up there, and he's pumping out the beats, and it's reverberating in, in everyone's chest. And people break out their glow sticks, and you've got those Hollywood lights that are up in the sky. Someone put up a bounce house for the kids, you know, the whole everything. 
And everyone in this scene is happy and everyone's having a good time. Except one. The older son hears the music. He hears the laughter and the dancing. He hears everyone giving a toast of champagne. And he is deeply troubled. What in the world is going on now? And so he asks the servants, and I imagine with great joy, he tells him of the, of the younger son who has returned. The one we thought was dead. Gone forever. And he tells him the father is throwing a big party for him and he spared no expense. We got the DJ, we got the lights, he put a robe on him, he put the gold ring on his finger. Man, come on, let's go. And everyone is celebrating except him. Atheist Mark Twain once said, Having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. Now, Twain recognized that there is a kind of professed devotion to God that is very cold and devoid of joy and love and warmth, and it would be much more enjoyable to go hang out with the sinners down at the local bar. Certainly, that is the spirit of this older son, and that was the spirit of the Pharisees. In a scene of exuberant joy, he is fuming, this young man, this older son. Music and dancing is not what he wanted to hear coming out of his father's house, especially not because of this good-for-nothing brother. He deserves nothing from the father, and instead he's getting a hero's welcome, and this makes him very angry. Now, the question must be asked, why is he angry? Is he righteously angry because his father was dishonored? Is he angry because this son broke his father's heart? And if that's the case, why do we not hear about him until now? Where was he when the father was trying to persuade the younger son to stay and to not go off? Where was this older brother? No. He's angry because he hates his brother and he has disdain for his father's mercy. The older son may share his father's house, but he does not share his father's heart. And so the full weight of this scene comes upon him. He sees the lights. He hears the music. And he protests his father's grace by refusing to join the celebration. He's protesting. He is not going to participate in such an event because, because it would give credence to the idea that this son is somehow respectable and that his father's mercy is somehow warranted. Now, this is the sin of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has no room for grace. Self-righteousness hates grace. 
I was thinking recently, especially as we're going through the Gospels, how often we talk about the Pharisees. I mean, I've at least preached a dozen messages that have the Pharisees as the main figures in the story. And I think the reason is God hates self-righteousness and God hates religious arrogance. And we're given so many examples of this, I think it acts as a warning to us, the church, that we who want to live righteously, who see God's good and holy law, and we say this is wonderful and we need to obey this, but he doesn't want us to become a Pharisee where we uphold the law and then end up despising people who are sinners. I think he wants us to know that we are much more like David Berkowitz than like God. Now, other people's sins might not be your sins, but you're still in the same category. Keep your finger in Luke. We're going to go right back to Luke, but I want you to see this. Titus chapter 3. Paul explains in the first half of the letter what Christ has done. And now he's explaining how we are to live in light of what Christ has done. He says we are to speak evil of no one, be gentle, show courtesy, towards all people, and then in Titus 3, verse 3, he tells us why. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. In other words, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what you're made of. Don't love God's law and then Use that as a way to separate yourself from other people who are lost and need the mercy of God. And as I'm reading through this description, I think this could be true of the openly sinful or the religiously sinful. I think this could apply to former Pharisees and former tax collectors. Okay, you can go back to Luke 15 now. So the older son, who is self-righteous, cannot see his self-righteousness because he's blind to his own sin. He refuses to go in to the party. That's verse 28. He will not celebrate the reunion of a son who is so unworthy. But notice, this is a great insult to his father. This is a public display of protest against his father's grace and word would get around very quickly that the son refuses to come in. He's like a teenager who's picking a fight with his parents before a house full of guests. 
the son is making it very clear that he opposes his father's kindness, and because of that, he would rather stay outside of his father's house. Now, if you're reading this or you're hearing this, it should become obvious by now that the father's house represents heaven. Okay? If you haven't picked up on that yet, I'm just going to give you the spoiler right now. Jesus is talking about heaven. This is the Father's house. And He's revealing why the Pharisees are not going to be going there. And why the tax collector is. The older son appeared to have a relationship with his father that he did not have. He appeared to have an unwavering kind of faithfulness by remaining, but in reality it was empty and it was outward. The older son, picture this, would rather not have fellowship with his father than accept his father's grace towards his wayward brother. He absolutely will not accept someone that has made such a mess of his life tax collector and sinner. And if that costs him fellowship with the Father, then so be it. So here's Jesus. He brings a message of mercy. The tax collectors and sinners are gathering to hear Jesus. And what does the Pharisee slash older brother do? He despises it and he separates from them and it's affecting his fellowship with the Father. You see, it's an attitude of contempt, and it is so far from the Father's heart. Now, back to the story. The Father, of course, is gracious. He welcomes this obstinate older son into the festivities. It says in verse 28, His father came out and entreated him, That is, he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the father comes out, he leaves the party. He comes out and he meets his son out in the field and he pleads with him to come in. He tries to reason with him. Why why should you miss out on my celebration? Why should you miss out on the joy of my house? But you begin to see what the older son is really like. His heart begins to be exposed. Outwardly, he is obedient, he is disciplined. And he keeps all the rules. But it is all selfishly motivated. And we begin to see that he has contempt for his father. 
Look at verse 29 again. He answered his father, look, literally, pay attention. We might say, let's get something straight. These many years I have served you. Now you don't get this in the English, but in the Greek it's literally, all these years I have slaved for you. The verb here is to be a slave. So, it's coming out of this older son's heart that this is not a joyful compliance. He is not happy to be in his father's house and to be serving his father. It is not a response of love that he has. His service is not because he adores and is devoted to his father. He is bitter. And what comes to light is that he knows nothing about the joy of being a son. He does not see the privilege it is to be near his father. He does not consider fellowship with his father something that is valuable. But he sees his father as a taskmaster and himself as a slave. All these rules I keep, all of this work I do for you, Add to this, the self-righteous always have an inflated view of themselves. Look at the end of verse 29. Well, the whole verse. He says, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. Now you remember, he's talking about the Pharisees here. And the Pharisees truly believed that they always kept God's law. They had religious customs and it blinded them to the reality of their own sin and the heart of the Father whom they claimed to know. And of course it helped that there were people in society that were obvious sinners that they could compare themselves to. The self-righteous loved to compare themselves to others. Look at this sinner. Look at that tax collector. I am not like they are. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. What does he say? God, I thank you that I am not like that man. J.C. Ryle once said, The true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. The true cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. Once the eyes of our understanding are opened by the Spirit, we shall talk no more of our own goodness. Once we see what is in our own hearts and what the holy law of God requires, self-conceit will die. We shall lay our hand on our mouths and cry with the leper, unclean, unclean, end quote. Think of the greatest sinner that you can imagine. History's full of them. 
Do you know that by nature you are more like them than you are like God? I'm talking about by nature. Born into this world. Made of the same stuff. We are more like one another than we are like God, and that's why we need a substitute before God. That's why we need a Savior, someone to redeem mankind, to put within us His Holy Spirit so that we think like God and speak like God and desire like God. But self-righteous people like to separate themselves into a different category and they think good people go to heaven and they think bad people who do horrible things have disqualified themselves. And that's why so many people hated the idea that David Berkowitz could know God and be forgiven. They hate that idea. Now, it's true that most will not commit murder. It's true that most will not randomly shoot people. But it's also true that we are all made of the same stuff and every single one of us has murder somewhere in our hearts. Maybe just in a seed form, but it's there. And when you realize that, and you see terrible sinners out in society or on the news, your attitude ought to be, but by the grace of God, there go I. The sin of the Pharisees was that they would separate from sinners and say, I am nothing like they are. And this is the attitude of the older son. He says again in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now notice here, he expresses no love for the Father, no gratitude, no respect, and how he really feels towards him all begins to surface here. And in a subtle way, and I just picked up on this, he does just as his prodigal brother did. What did the prodigal son say to his father? I want what's coming to me. What is the older son saying here? I want what's coming to me. He's been storing this up for years. He's been working. He's been obeying. All the while, he suppresses a kind of injustice attitude towards his father. And his heart now is saying, I should be the one getting the party. You should be celebrating me. And he has such disdain for the prodigal that he even refuses to consider him a brother. He says in verse 30, but when this son of yours came, this son of yours In his heart, he has no place in the same family as himself. He's not going to associate with him. He will not speak to him. In fact, he is going to shun him. 
just like the Pharisees do with the tax collectors and sinners. And we see here he has disdain for his brother and his father. Now, this did not just happen overnight. This is a kind of attitude of superiority that has been brewing within him for a long, long time. This is the kind of dangerous religious spirit that has no place among God's people. Refusing to accept whom the Lord accepts reveals something about your relationship to God and your understanding of God. The Pharisees studied the God of the Bible, but they did not know Him. They didn't share His heart. They couldn't fathom why He would be kind to such sinful, broken people. The older son shared his father's house, not his father's heart. Do you share the Father's heart? Do you share the Father's heart? Do you think there are people in society who are irredeemable because of their sins? Or would you leap for joy and dance in celebration if they were welcomed into the Father's house? if they humbled themselves and pulled themselves up from the pig pen and turned to the Father and received His grace. The Father has one last plea. He has one final offer. Verse 31. He said to Him, Son, You are always with Me, and all that is Mine is Yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And then the story just ends. That's how it ends. (laughs) Why does it end there? He doesn't tell us what happened. Does the older son humble himself and go and join in the festivities of the father's house? Or does he remain obstinate and angry and separate himself? And the story ends there because when Jesus told the story, it wasn't finished. It ends there because it was an invitation for those Pharisees to enter into the joy of the Father. So the story abruptly ends and this question sort of lingers over the crowd. Will they do it? Will they come in and join in with the tax collectors and sinners? Will they consider them brothers? Will they love the grace of the Father? will they enter into the Father's joy? Have you entered into the joy of the Father? One of the best proofs that you have is that you will love those whom the Father receives. 
even the worst of sinners. You recognize that they are repentant, that they are forgiven, and they are redeemed. Whether their crimes are few or whether they are many, you can celebrate with them in the Father's house. Or do you secretly believe there are some out there who are beyond forgiveness? And you look at them in society and you say, I am not like they are. What a temptation it might be to say, Lord, I thank You that I am not like the Pharisee. (laughs) Oh, but let us be careful, Lord. There is a Pharisee in each of our hearts. I pray, Lord, You would build us up in love. I pray You would cause us to love grace more and more and more. And I pray, Lord, that You would give us a heart for lost sinners who have sinned greatly. That we may tell them of the joy of our Father's house. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.